We'll begin by reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and then moving down to chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Moving down to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First, we're going to read another passage in Genesis, beginning at chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. Now we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. 
That's page 978, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband back to Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start. Um, And let me say, we are doing something a bit different tonight. Um, Our normal practice at Chalmers is to just work our way through books of the Bible, passage after passage, in the flow it comes, uh, because that keeps us safe from just picking our own hobby horses or being driven by the agenda of people rather than the agenda of God. But tonight we are stopping to do a topical talk, to take one particular topic uh, and think about it both in Genesis chapters 1 to 4 and on into the rest of the Bible. So let me pray for God's help that I wouldn't turn it into my hobby horse, but it would genuinely reflect the balance of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we always need your help when we come to your word. But particularly tonight, Lord, help me to be faithful to what your word says and help all of us to see the goodness of what you say and so live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the topic tonight is what does God say about men and women? It's been a big topic in chapters 1 to 4 of Genesis. Uh, It's pretty central to uh, who humanity are and what we're told in Genesis 1 to 4. But it is, of course, also a really hot topic in our culture at the moment. don't know how you feel about having an evening on that. Um, I felt pretty daunted preparing for it. Uh, I don't think there are many issues, actually, that are more divisive or uh, kind of controversial at the moment in the UK, and especially in Scottish politics, than conversations around gender and biological sex. Both Keir Starmer last month and Nicola Sturgeon last year came under criticism for refusing to define what a woman was when asked a simple question. In February in Scotland, there was that widespread outrage about a convicted double rapist transitioning gender and potentially being sent to a woman's prison. Recently, Joanna Cherry has just had her Edinburgh show reinstated, having originally been cancelled due to her gender-critical views, that is, views which prioritise original biological sex over gender self-identity. You couldn't get much more of a live argument around us. Uh, Just very recently, uh, there's been a gender-critical film uh, planned to be shown in Edinburgh University, which had to be cancelled twice because of protesters refusing to allow it to happen. So much so, some Edinburgh academics have now formed a group 
to defend the right to freely discuss controversial ideas like these ones. It's called Academics for Academic Freedom. Slightly unfortunately, that gives you the acronym AFAF, which I'm sure they weren't <laughs> aiming for. And maybe some of us feel like that tonight. We feel like this is just too hot to handle, too, too kind of confusing and difficult and controversial to even talk about. Well, I want to say right up front that the reason we're talking about it uh, is not as a problem, a kind of controversy that we want to weigh into. No, this is a good, intrinsic part of being human, being male and female. It's one of the things Genesis has been showing us. This is a good thing to celebrate and enjoy together. I don't think there's ever been more confusion around the issue of men and women in society. So are we born male and female? Is it something given to us, created before birth, written into our chromosomes? Or is it assigned to us at birth by medical professionals? Or is it actually something that we can decide upon ourselves through our own self-identification? And when we think of men and women, should we think they're basically the same, kind of interchangeable? Or actually, are they different? And if we are different, how and why? Are there reasons to value the other sex's unique contribution to humanity? Or are we just kind of generic, homogenous human beings? They're confusing issues, they're heated issues. And I think in our culture, there is a kind of sense of you can't say that. Maybe particularly, you can't say that. I'm conscious I'm standing here as a man, speaking about men and women. What gives me the right to speak on this? But of course, the answer is, by myself, I have no right or authority to say what the answer is for anyone else. No human actually does. This is one of the reasons we've got such chaos in our culture. We've got these competing voices, competing absolutes, each of which deserves a hearing, but none of whom can provide a definitive, authoritative answer for someone else or for everyone. See, only the creator of humanity can tell us from above who we are, what we're designed to be. That's why Genesis and the rest of the Bible is so wonderful. There are answers from our creator. Wonderful explanation of men and women, our wonderful equality, our glorious complementarity. That's our kind of key word tonight. That our natures are equal and different Rich diversity of two sexes in one humanity. Now tonight, I'll warn you up front, I've got too much to say. So I've compensated with a long handout. Um, So if you look on the handout, we're basically doing three things. It will sound simple now, and then by the time we get into the detail, you may think, when is this going to end? But three basic things. We're going to follow the Bible storyline. So point one, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, God's original pattern for men and women. God's original pattern. And we'll see it was very good, Genesis 1 and 2. But of course, that kind of harmony of the sexes is not the world we know. And so secondly, we're going to look at how the fallen world has horribly distorted this pattern, the horrible distortions of a fallen world, before finally, thirdly, God's good pattern is being restored through the gospel. That's where we get to Jesus and the teaching of the New Testament. So deep breath. Let's dive in. I'll go fairly quickly, I hope, through the Genesis stuff, because we have had a number of weeks in these passages, um, and please go back and listen if you want the fuller versions. Um, Let's dive in to point one. God's original pattern for men and women was very good. So back to Genesis um, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, our first reading. And the first thing we notice, I think, is the utter equality seen between men and women at creation. Verse 26, God said... Let us then make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over fish of the sea, birds of the heaven, livestock, and over all the earth, over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, verse 27, our key verse. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. It's pretty early in the Bible, isn't it? This topic comes up. Notice right from the start, humanity is designed male and female. Notice both man and woman are made in God's image. 
Every human person has that dignity and worth. Notice the commission to rule goes to both, verse 26 and verse 28, male and female, man and woman together to rule creation, to subdue it, to extend God's kingdom. They're both given that responsibility. They're both blessed. There's utter equality. Page one established, uh, the Bible establishes utterly equal in the image of God. Which brings us to our first implication. So on the handout, the little black arrows are going to be implications. Um, I've blanked them to keep you awake. If you've got a pen, you can try and keep up and scribble in the implication each time there's an arrow. Um, Here's the first one. Every person on the planet should be treated with genuine dignity. In the case of men and women, there's no place for chauvinism or misogyny. Which, for all our public political correctness still does go on behind closed doors. A Christian man should never look down on women. A Christian woman should never run men down as useless or a waste of space. Well, that's just typical of men. No, actually, every man and woman is made in the image of God, like every baby, like every elderly person, like every person from a different culture or demographic or skin color should be treated with dignity. That's our first thing, utter equality. But secondly, there is also clearly a designed difference of the sexes going on here. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. God didn't just create generic human. What's the implication of this? Well, firstly, if we're going to be God's image bearers on earth, we will better reflect God and his rule as men and women, than we would if we were just one gender. It's a design difference. Men are not women, and women are not men. I could tell you I have two human children. Actually, the truth is, my son was born a human male. My daughter was born a human female. That is a design difference and a good thing. We're designed both to enable families where men and women can complement each other, and to enable communities where men and women, married or not, can complement each other in their differences. We'll see that in the New Testament with the church community. Why is it we can better image God as men and women rather than just one gender? Here's the second implication of the design difference, if you're keeping up. Male and female humanity echo the interpersonal God. Robin said this when we were in this passage. God himself is personal. God is triune, three in one. A trinity of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in one God. It's hinted that there in verse 26, isn't it? God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Built into humanity are relationships that echo God's nature. Men and women are equal but different, as the Father, the Son, the Spirit are equal but different and relate together in a complementary way. So that's utter equality, design difference. I think the third implication of this design difference is that we have a role to rule the creation together. And that is a joint commission here in chapter 1. Together, male and female, to be fruitful and subdue the earth. I mean, that's clearly necessary in procreation, but I don't think that's what it's all about. Actually, the, the more dominant command here is to have dominion over creation. That is to extend God's rule, to extend God's kingdom throughout the world together. Something that's now fulfilled in Jesus's great commission to make disciples of all nations. And the simple fact is we do that better together rather than one gender. Designed difference. Okay, two things down. Final thing to notice from Genesis 1. We've seen there's utter equality. There's design difference. And thirdly, it's genuinely good. That's God's verdict, verse 31. Just have a look with me, verse 31. We've had this running refrain through Genesis 1 that everything's good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And now, once men and women have arrived, humanity in God's image, God's assessment, verse 31, 
When he saw everything that he'd made, behold, it was very good. Very good, says God. Two implications of that. Firstly, what God calls very good, we're not to call bad. It's one of the things we do chat with our children about. Um, Every so often, one of them will wish they'd been born a boy or born a girl. And and when we talk about it, um, often it's it's followed up by a claim that boys are better, and I'm not one of them. Or, Or girls are better, I'm not one of them. We say, hang on, hang on. Neither gender's better, just different. Actually, it's wonderful that there are boys and girls in the world. Wonderful that there are men and women in the world. It's very good, says God. Part of his good design. So let's not try and homogenize us all into a kind of blender of one uh, undifferentiated humanity. It's a precious, wonderful thing to have men and women on the planet and in any church family. Be hugely impoverished without the other gender. Far less able to reflect our relational, equal and different God. Secondly, no, and maybe you've already noticed this from the language I'm using. Here there are two genders, two sexes, just two sexes here. They're not assigned by others. They're not self-identified. They are given by the creator, male and female, he made them. To put it another way, and to use a word which our culture really doesn't like, but is here in the Bible pattern, the original creation pattern was binary. Male and female, he created them. And it was very good. Now, of course, we live the other side of the fall. We live in a world where a number of physical and mental complications mean that many people do hugely struggle with their bodies, struggle with a deep sense, a painful sense of gender dysphoria. It doesn't feel this simple, actually, anymore. And we should and we must speak with real compassion, real love to those for whom this, this creational reality doesn't fit how life actually feels personally. Actually, one of the truths that's fundamental to the Bible is that there's only one universe, and it's the one that God made. And we can try to create our own universes, and our culture will promise us freedom if we reinvent ourselves and reinvent God to fit ourselves. But actually, to throw off the givenness of creation is no freedom at all. Striking, we've been promised this freedom that you can be whoever you want to be, quite literally. And actually it's producing huge anxiety for many. Because in our culture, relationships and identity has become so liquid, so fluid, we don't know who we are anymore. We don't know who anyone else will be tomorrow. And we're struggling to coexist socially because if one person's inventing their universe and another their universe, there will be clashes as these identity claims and absolutes inevitably clash with one another. God's word would say, don't overturn what God says is very good, male and female who created them. Okay, that's Genesis 1. Have a wiggle of the toes or a deep breath. Plenty still to go. Let's have a look at Genesis 2, the other part of this good order, this good pattern of men and women. Um, Genesis 2 really just says the same things. It goes back over the story, but in much more detail. It zooms in, particularly on the creation of man and woman on day six of creation. And again, we see utter equality of man and woman. Uh, The whole drama in verses 18 to 23 is about finding a partner for Adam. We'll come back to that word helper um, later in verse 18. Um, but, But it's a helper fit for, or literally like opposite Adam, a corresponding partner. And then there's a kind of zoo conveyor belt where God passes parades animals past him. And it's just very clear that none of them could ever be a fit for Adam. 
until God makes Eve from Adam's own rib. And then Adam declares, here's a corresponding, like, opposite, equal partner. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, like me, at last. So there's the utter equality. Not some lesser species, not to be treated like some animal, although shamefully men have effectively done that sometimes. But bone of my bone, a like opposite, a fit for, a corresponding partner, someone to rule over the world with. Utter equality, it's there again. But we also get a lot more detail on the design difference here in chapter 2 and particularly the different roles that Adam and Eve will have in this first marriage and first family. Now I've summarized these on the sheet um, as uh, Adam being given responsibility to lead and Eve being given responsibility to help. Now sometimes those words that I've put there head as in head of the household or head of the family and the word helper are used Um, The word helper is actually in Genesis. We'll think about that in a moment in verse 18. The word head is not here. Uh, It's used in Ephesians 5 of the husband, and which we'll get to later. But whether or not you use that particular word, I think there are clear signs that Adam and Eve have different roles in this partnership. And in terms of Adam's role, a responsibility to lead. So just have a look. In verse 15, he is the one commissioned... And given God's command before Eve is created, he's told to work and guard the garden. It's clear he'll have to pass on what God said to Eve and his family. Actually, it's not just that. Adam names the animals. Adam addresses Eve. In verse 24, talking about the more general pattern of marriage, it's the man who takes initiative. So if you've ever wondered about, you know, the man getting down on one knee to pop the question... Well, actually, that's not just cultural sentimentality or kind of patriarchal traditionalism. It's actually rooted in this biblical pattern. Perhaps most significant of all, though, when the fall has happened in chapter 3, when Eve has eaten the fruit, when she gives some to Adam and he eats it, in chapter 3, verse 9, it is the man who God speaks to initially for an explanation. It's not that Eve bears no responsibility for her sin. She does. But Adam bears overall responsibility for the whole family, for her actions and his. That's why when the rest of the Bible looks back to this event, it sees it as the failure of Adam, the head of the human race. Even though technically he didn't eat the fruit first, he did fail first in his responsibility to lead his family, to guard the garden from the lies of Satan, to teach God's truth. Romans 5 puts it like this, sin entered through one man's disobedience. See how the Bible sees him as the head, the one with the primary responsibility to lead. Whereas with Eve, in verse 18, there is a different role. There's, again, design difference. Adam needs a helper fit for him, and Eve is God's answer to that lack Now, at this point, I think this is one of the moments where outrage could really start to boil up. I mean, you can't seriously be telling me that God's design for men and women is for the men to be in charge, so they have it all their own way while they sit on the sofa, and for the poor women to be like their runaround helpers fetching whatever they fancy at their beck and call. Isn't that precisely the kind of exploitative patriarchy we've seen cause such damage in our world? Well, right up front, let me say, the kind of sofa-sitting, order-barking, lazy husband stereotype, though common in life, is about as far from the biblical idea of head as you can get. We'll see that later in Ephesians 5. But still, we might think, well, how can you say utter equality with one breath if you've then got this head and helper thing going on. I mean, it it all sounds a little bit like George Orwell's Animal Farm. You know, all animals are equal. It's just some animals are more equal than others. A couple of things here. Firstly, I think in our culture, we find it hard to conceive of someone's value not being tied to their role. 
If someone gets appointed leader, we kind of subconsciously think they're valued higher. All that shows is how far we've come from Genesis 1. Our worth is not tied to jobs or roles. It's tied to our dignity in God's image, being created like that. Secondly, I think when our ears hear the word helper, we do think of it as a term of weakness. Dear little Eve, she tries to help. Bless her. But actually, that word helper is used of God in the Old Testament. The helper of Israel. Ebenezer, the Lord has been our help. Ezer, help word. It's not a term of weakness, but of ability to assist, of strength. Secondly, also, helper is not a statement about something lacking in Eve, but something lacking in Adam, or at least Adam on his own, Adam trying to rule solo. That's what's so striking about verse 18. We get our first, it's not good for man to fulfill his commission alone. I don't think that's just a marriage partner to be fruitful and multiply. I think it's also a complementary helper. Someone who can work alongside him, equal but different, supporting with his loving lead as they together subdue the earth. So there's the difference outlined in Genesis 2. Still utterly equal, bone of my bones, but with God-designed differences in roles in the family. Husband with responsibility to lead, to teach, to guard. The wife has a responsibility to help, to support, assist. Not for every whim of a lazy husband putting his feet up, but to assist Adam in his great commission to extend God's kingdom and fill the earth with image bearers. That was the original pattern, and it was very good. The first marriage, husband and wife working together in perfect harmony, perfect complementarity of differences, distinct but fitting together, not just biologically, but in other ways, Both sexes working together, far better than just men or just women. Now, we may have questions of, well, how does that apply to me if I'm not married? Please go back and listen to the talks on Genesis 2, um, or or stick a question in the question box. Um, I should have said, I can't remember if I did, but um, there is a box on the back for questions if you want to scribble one down as we go through. I'm conscious this is a talk that may raise lots of questions, and there's there's a question time coming up on the 18th of June. Actually, I wonder if the biggest question we have or should have is what went wrong. Because this kind of glorious complementary um, and mutually enriching relationship is not what we've seen. Many of us in our own experience of families um, and certainly in the society we're in. So what went wrong? Well, point two, very briefly, we did Humanity went wrong. This is what chapter 3 is all about. We're not going to go into great details here because Jay covered this over the last few weeks. Um, But we do need to see how far we've fallen from God's original created ideal. In fact, so comprehensive is the sin and the mess now, it is honestly hard to imagine how good that original pattern must have been, unspoiled by sin and selfishness. We've seen through history... um, the history of the globe, we've seen so many selfish men taking advantage of women. We have seen marriages where the man hasn't been a loving servant leader, sacrificing himself to to God and to teach God's truth. We have seen that kind of lazy exploitation of that position of authority for personal gain. So what happened? Well, Genesis 3, 1 to 6, tells us this terrible rebellion against God happened. And everything is turned on its head in these six short verses. Adam and Eve, they're supposed to rule over creation under God's word. But what actually happens is they listen to a creature over them and reject God's word. Eve is there to help Adam, help him to serve God, but leads him into sin and rebellion. Most shockingly of all, Adam was there the whole time, verse 6. Her husband was with her. He was there the whole time, (laughs) failing to guard the garden, failing to teach God's word when lies were being spouted by the serpent, 
failing to lead his family. There's this total abdication of responsibility. And from verse 7 onwards, the consequences start to unravel. Some of them are kind of immediate, automatic, like the cover-up, the sense of shame, the blame game that Adam begins. Some consequences come from the mouth of God as he curses humanity in judgment for their actions. I'm not going to go through all the detail of the fallout. But I'm just going to draw our attention to verse 16. <clears throat> Again, Jay spoke about this in more detail. But um, halfway through verse 16, um, we read these words, particularly relevant to men and women. To Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, much thought and ink has been spent on understanding what this is talking about. But as Jay said, the context of Genesis is the best way to understand it. And chapter 4, verse 7, uses these same words of desire for you and, and ruling over it to describe the battle for control that was going on in Cain's heart against sin. The point being that this glorious partnership, this designed, equal but different, mutual working together to serve God, has now become a battleground. One of my stranger pastimes is going to the puzzles and games section of charity shops on a day off. Jesse doesn't understand why I do it. I find it quite interesting just to see what's there. Um, and I came across a board game just two weeks ago called The Battle of the Sexes. My first thought was, oh, brilliant, I'll, I'll bring it as an illustration. And I thought, actually, I'm not going to bring that or buy it because it's not actually funny, is it? It's not something to trivialize. The reality is every single sinful person deep down wants to rule the universe. We all want to be king. We're all tempted to assert control of others to serve ourselves. And so now, even in marriage, that most intimate and loving of relationships, there's this battle for control and mastery. Wives tempted to seek to control or to manipulate or to usurp their husbands. Husbands seeking to control by abusing their position, ruling harshly, dominating, using their physical strength, or sometimes just abdicating entirely as Adam did failing to lovingly lead. That's the world we now live in. Strike it's not many chapters further in Genesis when Abraham tells Sarah she has to pretend to be his sister in Egypt so he can be protected at her expense. It's not much longer when Sarah tells Abraham to sleep with a servant girl so they could get that child. And actually, you only need to get to Genesis 4 to see the ugly, abusive husband of Lamech. Lamech has rejected God's created pattern. This is um, chapter 4, verse 23. It's no longer one wife. He's collected two. And he boasts to them about his violent strength. So ugly. A thinly veiled threat to his wives as he says what massive retribution he doled out to a young lad who slighted him. An ugly picture of abusive, violent male power. And I think when we see distortions as horrible as that, both in scripture and in life, I think it would be easy for us to think, well, shouldn't we just ditch the whole pattern? It's just too dangerous having husbands as heads. You can't trust them with that kind of authority. Wouldn't it be better just to make... The roles of men and women in marriage and in church just interchangeable, entirely flat. Some Christians would argue that. Now, there's never any justification for domestic abuse. I hope if we ever see it or are aware of it, we talk to someone so we can stop it. But to know whether we should ditch the whole created pattern of Genesis 1 and 2, we need to turn to Jesus and the New Testament, and see what he actually says. You see, in the gender minefield and the confusion of a fallen world, there's one person you can really rely on to speak and live the truth, always in love. Jesus Christ, the creator, come to earth. Now, what's striking when you do look to Jesus is that he and his disciples kept turning to 
Genesis for answers in this area. He was asked about uh, divorce um, and marriage. Basically, could, can you get rid of a wife for any cause, asked the Pharisees. And in Matthew 19, he goes back to Genesis 1. Have you not read? He created the male and female. It's our first point. And then he goes to Genesis 2, 24, our second passage, and reads out word for word that verse about marriage. See, Jesus thought the original pattern is still the answer, still very good, despite how it's been exploited and distorted by sin. And actually, he modeled these three things we keep seeing of utter equality between men and women, designated difference between men and women, and genuine goodness of men and women. He really did model it. So the utter equality. I do recommend, um, maybe over the summer, just reading through a gospel and seeing how Jesus treats people, including women. It is astonishing, the countercultural, counter-expectation, the way he loves and cares for individuals, the way he serves women in a culture which so often overlooked them or looked down upon them. So he speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well, to the shock of his own disciples, when no one else from the village would even stand near her. He stops the entire crowd once to speak to the desperately ill woman with bleeding. He defended the devotion of the woman who who anointed his feet with tears and perfume against the judgmental stares of the Pharisees. He commended Mary and others for sitting at his feet as a disciple to learn from his teaching which again was a radically countercultural move. He didn't just believe in the utter equality of men and women. He showed it in how he related and appreciated and worked alongside women. So in his traveling group, there were a number of men and women, and some of the women were supporting and enabling the mission to continue. And it's not just a Jesus thing, actually. If you look at his apostles, people like Paul and the people he commissioned to write the New Testament, Um, Similarly, Paul lists a a huge number of women in his letters, many of whom described as co-workers, fellow laborers for the gospel, major responsibilities like hosting churches, people who've been a huge blessing to him personally as a single man in ministry. And yet, alongside all of that honoring and cherishing and appreciating men and women as as utterly equal, well, nevertheless, Jesus did choose 12 male apostles to lead and teach the church. It wasn't that he didn't value women's testimony. Uh, they were the first to witness the resurrection. He came and met Mary personally and gave her a message to spread. I don't think it was just because of a cultural reason, as if male apostles would be accepted in the day. No, Jesus was more than happy to overturn cultural norms when it was right. Now, Jesus gave those men the responsibility to lead and teach the early church, the household of God, because he was re-establishing the created order in the church family, as well as the nuclear family, Christian marriages. That is, he believed in the genuine goodness of men and women working together in a complementarian way in families and churches. And so as you read on in the New Testament, um, uh, the, the words of the apostles that he commissioned to speak, it's no surprise that you see this teaching being unpacked in those two areas, uh, the, the marriage household, the nuclear family of a Christian marriage, and the church household, the household of God, complementarity in churches. Now, we don't have much time left, or really any time left, but I will go slightly longer tonight. Um, I'm going to give headlines now, and, and feel free to ask questions in the Q&A, um, and we can follow up in more detail. Let's just turn to Ephesians 5, our final reading. We'll see it in detail applied to marriage, and I'll just mention it in terms of the church family. So Ephesians 5, on page um, 979. That's worth saying, the, the point we're dropping into the letter of Ephesians... In terms of the letter, the equality of men and women has already been established. Um, We've already seen that we're equally chosen before the beginning of time, that we were equally sinful and trapped in our sin, 
that we're equally made alive by the Holy Spirit, that we're equally forgiven by Jesus, equally joined together into one church family, equally given good works to walk in, and equally share one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one church family. As Galatians 3.28 says, in Christ there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. When it comes to inheriting God's promises, being a child of God, part of the family... We're utterly equal. But having said all that in Ephesians so far, well, then when you get to Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 23, it's uh, 22 to 33, sorry, it's clear that the commands and responsibilities given to men and women in marriage are not the same. They're not symmetrical and they're not interchangeable. There is a designed difference. So in verses 22 to 24, Wives are called to submit to their husbands uh, the way that the church submits to Christ. That is to say, they're to willingly, voluntarily follow and support the lead of their husbands, even in times when they might have chosen to do something different. Which sounds pretty hard, given what lots of us men are like. Their reason to do it is not based on the worth of that particular man, but on Jesus and his worth. But then husbands are called to a standard which is at least as hard again. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the standard. Lay down your life for the sake of your spouse. Don't lead for what suits you. Don't prioritize our selfish agenda. Now the head of the household is to be the one who daily dies to protect and care for and teach the family. Jesus died to get his bride, the church, to heaven. And every husband should take that same attitude. My job is to guard and to teach and to love and to serve this family so they get all the way to the end of the Christian race, trusting Jesus. That's the design difference. It's what we saw in Genesis 2, now worked out in Christian marriages It's not easy. That's why we need these commands. We're all battling our own sin and our selfishness. That's why we need the gospel motivation of Jesus. Just as a very practical application, for those of us who are married, I think one sensible outbox from this talk tonight would be to have a chat about how is this going. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Husbands asking our wives How can I love and serve and lead you better? How could I help you grow as a Christian? Or perhaps this most revealing question, which I did try over the weekend for Jesse. Is there anything I do that makes it harder for you to gladly submit to me? Very revealing. Likewise, wives, it would be good to ask our husbands, how can I support you as you try to lead this family? Are there ways you feel I undermine you? Are there ways I could help you to lead us in serving God together? If we're not married, please pray for and support those of us who are and talk to us about it. It's not easy. This side of Genesis 3, in a fallen world with fallen natures, it is not easy. Even before the world tells us this is crazy. That's applied in the Christian household. And just very finally, very briefly, um, this original creation pattern is not just being restored in Christian marriages, that kind of nuclear household. It is also being um, restored in the household of God. Now, we don't have time to turn there or go through this in detail. Um, 1 Timothy 2 and the the second half of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3 are a good place to go. Feel free to go back and listen to our series on that. We did a whole series through that book, which can talk about this in much more detail. Um, But um, whereas, as we've said, in the church, we are all utterly equal in salvation. We're equally gifted for ministry. We're all to speak the truth in love to each other. We're all to encourage each other. We're all to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. I hope afterwards we'll all be talking to one another about what God's word has been saying. But nevertheless, when it comes to the overall leadership of a church family and the teaching with authority, so the preaching up front in a church family, it is clear in 1 Timothy 2, 
and three, that, that that particular role should be fulfilled by men specifically. Not all men or any men, but men who are suitably qualified as elders, that is, godly in character, able to teach the Bible, and already showing signs they can lead their household with integrity and gentle use of authority. Which is to say, that original creation pattern being redeemed and reapplied in the Christian church household. What does this look like for Chalmers? Well, on Sunday, you'll see men and women up here at the front serving in all sorts of ways, leading music and prayers for others and Bible readings and and the leading the service and the welcome. But you will just see male preachers here, uh, usually from the elder team. We'll see men and women teaching in youth and children's work, one-to-ones, small groups, male and female deacons, men and women serving and leading in administration. But again, the overall preaching and teaching responsibility of the mixed congregation is a responsibility taken by our elders. That will be our understanding across our training programs as well. We absolutely love having male and female ministry associates and leaders in training. Programs are so much better when we have men and women together and much richer, much better. But at the moment, Amy and Esther and Izzy are training with us not to be ministers or elders or preachers to mixed congregations. They're training to work alongside in team ministries, women's ministry or youth ministry, alongside elders or ministers. There are still areas we're still thinking through. Um, uh, Questions like uh, bite-size or seminars or student lunches. There's things the elders are still working out as we try our best to submit to Scripture in these areas. Actually, just as we close, I want to end with the question, not what does it look like for us kind of organizationally as a church family, but rather what does it look like for us personally? Will we gladly play our part in God's grand design? So if we've ever been tempted to look down upon or speak down about the other sex, will we repent? If we've ever felt God made a mistake making us the way we are, will we chat to someone and speak to God for help to trust him? If we're married, do we need to repent of and say sorry for certain attitudes or behaviors where we've slipped far short of God's design? If we've been entrusted with church leadership or home leadership, do we need to step up and take that responsibility once more with our eyes on Christ. See, God's good design, it's not an awkward necessity, a topic we kind of have to talk about. It is a good thing, a very good thing, that can help us flourish as we learn from Jesus how to play our part. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're very conscious many of these Things, many of these passages we could spend a whole evening talking about. And many of these questions and issues are very close to home. Many of us have been grieved or hurt in the past by bad examples of the dynamics between men and women. And so we pray very much that by your gospel, you would be changing us and healing us and helping us in this church family and in every marriage in this church to be living the way you would have us live in genuine love and other-centered, other person-centered service. Because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.